wrap up our conversations. We'll be back for more small group discussion after. It's good to hear. Sounds like some good conversation happening at the tables. Um, so good morning. It is so good to be together, to sit around God's word, to talk about it together, and to remember that this isn't some ancient book written for an ancient people. Um, but every verse in this book has relevance and truth for our hearts today. So if you want to open up to Habakkuk 2 if you're not there already, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Let's pray. Dear God, I just pray um, for myself and for all these in the room, Lord, that you would um, just give us receptive hearts. Help us to hear your word and your truth this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let's just really briefly remember where we've been in order to see why Habakkuk is stationing himself at his watch post. Now, the book of Habakkuk began with Habakkuk looking around and being overwhelmed by the darkness, the sin, and the injustice within Israel. The law had been paralyzed. There was strife, contention, and wickedness. So Habakkuk took his cry of lament to the Lord. Oh, Yahweh, how long? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you seem to sit idly by? Now, surprisingly, as much as we would love this same response sometimes, God responds with a clear statement of authority. Habakkuk, I know it's bad. I see the wickedness and I'm going to do something about it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to bring about judgment on Israel's wickedness. Now, as Jenna walked us through this middle section of chapter one, we saw that the Babylonians were not fine, upright, God-fearing people, but were instead instruments of destruction, dreaded and fearsome, proud, arrogant, violent, and scoffing at those who would take a stand against them. And we see in verse 11 in, in chapter 1, this alarming summary. They are guilty men whose own might is their God. And then last week, Noreen explained Habakkuk's response to God's answer. Wait, what? God, you are from everlasting. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look on wrong. So why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the righteous? Habakkuk is questioning God's sovereignty. His goodness in allowing such an evil nation to prosper and conquer his chosen people. Now, Noreen identified three things that Habakkuk was doing in, his, in this second lament to God. He's identifying God as his. We see this in phrases like, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? And then he is reminding God of his promises. We see in verse 12 this little phrase, We shall not die. 
And Habakkuk is calling to mind God's promises to, to keep his people, to keep a remnant um, as his chosen people. And then finally, Habakkuk is asking his question to God and then waiting. Noreen ended by reminding us, just like Habakkuk, we wait on a God who is sovereign, who is in control, who keeps his promises, and who is ultimately perfectly good. Now this brings us to our passage starting in 2 verse 1, where we see Habakkuk taking his stand. He is stationing himself on the tower and waiting to hear what God will say to him. Habakkuk is waiting with expectancy, with faith, that God will answer and will not forsake his people. In Old Testament times, the prophet's role was in some ways to be a watchman for the nation. Just as soldiers would guard the city, standing on the wall to alert others if danger or if enemies were approaching, so a prophet was to stand as the protector of the people, as a first line of defense to warn of approaching spiritual danger. And we see that so often in the um, the minor prophets, that the, the people are saying, well, hold up, like, we're straying from God's ways. Um, and so they're, they're kind of that, that warning light, that, um, that first line of defense. Now, I don't know about you guys, but after reading this first verse, all I could picture is a scene from Mulan, um, when the soldier is standing on that great wall of China, watching out for enemies, and he sees the approaching Huns. Um, the moment he sees something suspicious, he lights his signal fire, to spread the news that danger is coming. Now, hinted at in the Disney version of a watchman at his post, there is truth sometimes in Disney, not often, but <laughs> um, hinted at there, Habakkuk stationing himself to wait for God's reply was not an easy task. Watching and waiting is hard. It takes time. It can be lonely. It calls for quietness and perseverance. I'm sure that many of us can relate to this, um, we've had to go through seasons of waiting on the Lord. Perhaps it was the prayer for a family member's salvation or the prayer for relief from a tremendous burden or stressor. Perhaps the prayer for healing or the prayer for guidance. One commentator put it this way, the process of waiting is as important as the moment of clarification and fulfillment. We grow in faith by learning how to wait. Now, this, this commentator also mentioned the fact that waiting like this is exasperated by the fact that it often requires us to be open to an alternative answer. When we reach this point of resting and waiting on God, often we've already had the inner turmoil of incessant reasoning and rationalizing. We've thought through the situation from every angle um, and, and its consequences from every angle. And, and we think that we know what would be the best way forward, the best outcome. But we have to consciously set those plans and those fears and those desires to the side and cling to what we know to be true about our God. Reaching this point of waiting on the Lord can also be hard because we need to be open to correction. Maybe we aren't thinking about something rightly, or maybe we're idolizing a particular vision or plan or relationship. And, and by waiting on the Lord and submitting to his plan, these sinful thought patterns can be brought to light. Now, I went through something um, slightly related to this this last week. Um, my oldest is almost six and has recently been really pushing the boundaries of obedience. And he's just had this, um, this hardness of heart when it comes to correction. Um, and I've been feeling really overwhelmed by all of the runaway thoughts. Um, well, what if he stays proud and hard to the things of the Lord? What if he never humbles his heart to the gospel? 
what does this say about me or my parenting? Um, will he one day point back to every time I was angry and frustrated and say, oh, look, this is, this is hypocrisy and this is why the gospel doesn't work for you. It doesn't work for me. Um, I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate to this, this cycle of fears and, and of these thoughts. Um, and after spending some time in prayer, listening to a sermon um, on the powerlessness that we have to affect salvation, and then God's grace and conversion. Um, I think I was beginning to think a little bit more properly about it. Uh, my kids' salvation, their stories are not up to us. God's at work in their lives, and I can trust God with my fears. Um, but the real needed scalpel slice to the heart didn't come until I talked it over with Utah um, one night, and he said something about just how my, my general disposition toward the boys um, lately had been one of, of pessimism and, and judgment. Um, I think I was taking all of their obedience and sin personally and allowing my view to become so bleak and so hopeless and so discouraged um, that there was just no, no hope of what God was doing in their, in their hearts. Um, I wasn't seeing their love to read the, their Bible, the kids' Bible, or their occasional, occasional acts of love towards one another. Um, and I was putting myself in the place of the judge of their hearts and their motives and, and being a harsh judge at that. So I needed this correction. I needed to be able to take my eyes off of my fears and my thoughts and, and turn to what is true. Um, and, and thankfully through Utah. And I'm, I'm thankful for this tool that God used to realign thinking and to re-anchor my trust um, in, in the Lord's good work and his grace to change, change hearts. So watching and waiting. This is a hard place to be. But as we'll see from Habakkuk, it's a necessary place to be as God often uses it to soften our hearts and to anchor our trust in him. Now Habakkuk doesn't tell us how long he had to wait for God's reply, but we see the Lord's answer starting in verse 2. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Habakkuk, write this down, post it as a billboard. I don't want any room for error or misremembering. I love that. Even in this, even in writing down a message, we get a small taste of God's grace. Um, God wanted Habakkuk to write down this message so that it could be instructive to others, so that it could be a permanent witness of God's uh, faithfulness and justice, which is such a kindness. Um, we also get this continued imagery of the watchman lighting that signal fire. The, message, the messenger is now running to spread the news. This is a message that has to be passed on, told to others and explained. And then in verse three, we for um, then in verse three, this vision awaits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Okay, Habakkuk. Here's the big explanation. Here's my answer to the question of my sovereignty, the answer to wickedness in this world, and my plan for ultimate justice. But you'll have to keep waiting. Um, here's a reminder that God's timing is not our timing. We read in Psalm 90, verse 4, 1,000 years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And then even in the New Testament, Christ reminds us that God's timing is not ours, as the day of the Lord will come in the twinkling of an eye at a time when we least expect it. God also notes that his plan hastens to the end, which means it's still not fulfilled. Yes, we could say today, looking back at history, Babylon has been brought low, you know, they're not the world's superpower anymore. Um, they've been judged for their wickedness in, in some sense, but, but not yet in an ultimate sense. At the end of time, 
When Christ returns, wickedness will be judged in finality. And God also notes in the middle of verse 3, it will not lie. God's reputation and his honor is wrapped up in his promises. He cannot lie, and therefore his words are not lies. What he says will come to pass. And now what is this that's coming? What is this vision or this message that Habakkuk is to make plain? And it's, I, the Lord, will judge wickedness. But my people, the righteous, shall live by their faith. Starting in verse 4, and we see, um, first we see this soul puffed up, this wicked man who is not upright. Then in verse 5 and onward into what we'll be looking at next week, we, we see this graphic description of Babylon's wickedness in particular, but also the wickedness and sin that lies in all of our hearts. Drinking, we, I mean, in, in our passage today, we see drinking, arrogance, the intoxication of conquest, idolatry, addictiveness, or addiction, that's not a word, greed, destruction. His soul, his very being is crooked and twisted within him. A proud person relies on himself, whereas the righteous person relies on God. As one commentator put it, instead of being straight and straightforward, self-sufficient people find that they have to pretend and put on an act. This is fundamentally because they're living a lie. They've decided to rely on themselves alone, and therefore they compel themselves, because of their pride, to give the constant impression of having it all together and being successful. Does this remind you of someone, a friend, a family member, or yourself? Thankfully, the second half of this verse holds out the alternative. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, this is the pinnacle of the book, the heart of God's vision to Habakkuk. And as our study guide even says, these seven words sum up the entire Christian life. So let's make sure we understand them. The righteous, the upright, the justified are those with a good standing before God, and they shall live or shall be preserved from the judgment and woe to come on the wicked. Remember, at this time, Israel is dark in their sin, and Babylon is even darker in their wickedness. Yet here we get this piercing bright light of hope and relief. Like when you go to a jewelry store and they'll, they'll take the ring out of the case and they'll hold it up for you in front of a, um, a dark cloth so you can see the, the brilliance of the jewels. Or when you're looking in the display cases, they always have a, a dark backing um, so that you can just see the, the brilliance or the, the beauty of the jewel. Um, similar to this, like, um, sorry. <laughs> or... Um, this brings to mind the time in Israel's history when, um, that we read about in the book of Judges, when, when sin is gross and wickedness is rampant, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and then we see this, this brilliant, bright light of obedience and God's redemptive goodness in the lives of Ruth and Boaz. I think similarly to this, surrounded in this description of Babylon's wickedness, of the darkness and death, we get the spotlight of something good and true, of someone who has faith in God. Calvin is quoted as saying, this is a faith which strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God. Contrasted to the pride and self-sufficiency of the wicked, this faith leads us right where we were created to be. When we bow our knees to God, when we give up pretending that we're in control, when we humble our hearts before him, we will be made right in his eyes. 
we will be justified by our faith. Genesis 15 tells of Abraham believing in God, and that faith is counted to him as righteousness. And this phrase from Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live by faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. And I'm so glad that we can use scripture to understand scripture. Um, So I just wanted to really briefly look at each of those three quotes to help us flesh out this faith um, from this side of the cross. So first I'll read from Romans 1, 16 to 18. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is faith that makes sinners righteous um, in God's eyes. So we know that faith comes before any good works as the starting point of Christian faith or of the Christian life. This passage in Romans also reminds us that we are declared righteous, not by what we've done, but by trusting God and his power for salvation. And flipping over to Galatians 3, verse 10, I'll read, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Christ the law has been fulfilled. God's people are no longer justified or made right before God by faithfully doing the acts of the law. The sacrificial system is no longer needed to make one righteous because a greater sacrifice has been made. Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, bore the sin of us all and paid the penalty that our sin requires. He redeemed us so that we are no longer justified by the works that we do, or the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And then finally in Hebrews 10, I'll be reading verse 36 through 11 to For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, For by it, the people of old received their commendation. This is an exhortation for believers under pressure to remain faithful to Christ. When we face dark days, trials, or suffering, do we have faith in the promises of God and the finished work of Christ? The author of Hebrews then launches into the the hall of faith, uh, the record of men and women who had faith in God when all else seemed to be falling away men and women who trusted the word of God through and through. 
So I think from these New Testament quotes, we know that the Christian life begins with an act of faith, but it continues with many acts of faith. We see that in the Romans and Galatians are speaking more to the, the moment of beginning faith and that the act of faith needed um, at salvation. But then in Hebrews, it, it kind of opens our eyes to those little acts of faith that come day by day. The ESV Study Bible says the kind of faith that Habakkuk describes and the New Testament authors affirm is a continuing trust in God and his promises, even in the darkest of days. And I think sometimes, maybe this is just my personal experience, but I feel like sometimes the having faith in the, the darkest of days or the, the hard trials, um, maybe this is hard to say, but I feel like in some ways that can be easier than having faith in those moment-by-moment tiny little decisions and, and moments of our days. I think when, when the, the floor falls out from under you, um, sometimes it's just so, you're just so rocked and so, um, yeah, the floor is gone under you. And so there's nothing to cling to other than Christ. But I feel like when it's the, the day by day dying to self, denying the flesh and, and choosing to trust God's promises over our fears or over the way that we're, um, processing through things, I think that can sometimes be the harder living by faith. Um, yet this is what we're called to as God's people and as the righteous. So when he says the righteous shall live by faith, God is saying, trust me. In the moment of salvation, trust me. In the day by day, minute by minute temptations to go your own way, trust me. When the days are dark, when nothing else makes sense, when the world is coming at you at full force, or when you're tired, lonely, depleted, trust me. This is what Habakkuk needed to hear when he was overwhelmed by the wickedness around him when he was terrified by the judgment and destruction that was coming. I may not know what's happening in your life this morning or why you need to hear this truth today, but I trust that our God is faithful and true, that he is a God who is sovereign, who is in control, who keeps his promises, and who is ultimately perfectly good. And just from, um, from Jude, we hear, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joys, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for for. For books like Habakkuk that remind us um, when all else seems to be fading away, when, when nothing makes sense, God, you are good and you are in control. And even when that doesn't make sense to our hearts, we can cling to that truth. We can cling to your promises and who you are. So I pray whether it's in, in the, the overwhelming trials of life, the, the big things happening, or in the moment by moment, Um, dying to self, choosing to respond in the ways that you would have us respond and to walk in your ways instead of our ways, Lord. Um, I pray that that your kingdom would come in our hearts and lives, in in the life of our church and and in our our worlds, Lord. Um, So I pray for all the women here. I pray that this would be just an encouragement to their heart as we go out into the week. And I pray that you would um, just bless our, our continued time of conversation now. We pray this in your name. Amen.